You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hello and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I'm your host. I have a degree in art history and a habit that some people tell me is endearing, but I'm afraid that they're actually really annoyed by, of talking during movies, especially when said movies feature appearances by famous paintings from art history. This is relevant to today's episode. If you are new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us some story from the past. I will let you know what that's going to be this episode in just a moment. I will also be posting the artwork in question over on the Instagram for the page, which is at Art of History Podcast. I also post some supplemental images over there, which I will drop in um, as we go throughout the episode, so you kind of know when to hop over there and look at them if you're kind of making this a multimedia experience with the Instagram pulled up while you listen. I don't know how many people actually do that. I'm digressing. While you are over at the Instagram, go ahead and give me a follow. It only saves you time, after all, for future episodes. And I have been known to post sneak peeks as to what each month's episode is going to be over there. This month, I did indeed post such a sneak peek, inviting people to guess what painting we were going to be discussing. And two people did, so I want to shout out Jillian and Miriam, who guessed that this episode is going to be about the Raft of the Medusa. Now, this is a work of art that got moved up my list of pieces that I wanted to cover on the podcast, which I can do since I'm the only one who works on this show. But this painting got moved up from the shortlist to the top spot because aside from being one of Western art's greatest works of all time, It also recently had a moment in the media spotlight in a pivotal scene in the film John Wick Chapter 4. Now, if you know me personally, you might know that John Wick is not my normal genre of film. Um, And I don't say that as a knock to action movies, but I just had never, I'd never seen any of the John Wick movies until my partner really wanted to go see it. And I said, yeah, that sounds fun. How hard could it be to get up to speed? I quickly read the Wikipedia synopsis of the first three movies and then watched the fourth one, at which point I was so (laughs) compelled and interested in the storyline that I said, okay, let's go back and watch the rest of them. So this is now a John Wick Stan podcast is is the point of this rant. I will leave the movie tie-in proper till the end of the episode so that you can avoid any spoilers if you would like to go into John Wick Chapter 4 without knowing how it ends, because I do need to kind of spoil the movie in order to fully discuss why I think The Raft of the Medusa was featured in the movie. So maybe for the first time ever on an art podcast or a history podcast, spoiler warning for John Wick Chapter 4, or really for the whole franchise, I guess. 
Um, I do have some other content warnings for the top of this episode, um, particularly the ones that pertain to the painting itself, which will include discussions and depictions of some pretty grisly stuff, um, like dead bodies and cannibalism. So if you would like to avoid that kind of grim content, this might not be the episode for you, just a fair warning. Also, final content warning, I finally get to use one of my favorite catchphrases from one of my all-time favorite podcasts, uh, Vulgar History, read by the lovely Anne Foster. Trigger warning, Lord Byron. That's all I'm going to say. And finally, before we dive into the meat of the episode, this is your cursory reminder to head over to Apple Podcasts, rate the show, leave it a five-star review, please. Um, Tell your mom about the show. Tell your roommate about the show if they're not listening with you. It just, it really helps get the show in front of other listeners. Um, And when that happens, I can take it more seriously and devote more time to it. So thank you in advance for all of your support and for sharing it with your loved ones, as I know you're all doing right now. (laughs) So without any further ado, The Raft of the Medusa by Theodore Jericho. My Masterpieces of the Louvre coffee table book writes of this painting, quote, The raw emotional effect of this vast, meticulously composed romantic, capital R, masterpiece, created a sensation at the 1819 Salon. The painting refers to the scandalous aftermath of a shipwreck when a government-appointed captain abandoned 140 men at sea. Only 15 were still alive when the party was finally saved. Reports of cannibalism added to the public's outrage. Now, if that's not compelling and lends itself just perfectly to a podcast where we tell a story about history through a work of art, I don't, I don't know what we're doing here. For this episode, I think I'm going to weave the biography of the painter, the story behind the work of art, and the composition of the canvas itself all together. So we're kind of going to meander through the subject matter um, really holistically, which I'm excited about. Born in Rouen in 1791, Theodore Jericho came from a wealthy family, which enabled him to pursue a truly independent course in his art, and that is important. He was trained in part by Pierre-Narcisse Guérin, who was a follower of the neoclassical master Jacques-Louis David. You will know that name from episode two of this show, where I discussed David and his arguably masterpiece, The Death of Marat. We also discussed the French Revolution and republicanism in that episode. That has some foundational knowledge, which will be useful later in this episode as well. Jericho also spent time in the galleries of the Louvre, studying artwork that Napoleon had ransacked from across Europe, and taking inspiration from works by Rubens, Titian, Velázquez, and Rembrandt. He had, in short, a really good artistic foundation and was well-trained in classical drawing techniques. He shared the neoclassical obsession with heroism and the epic political figure, but Jericho chafed at the rigidity quote, instead producing works that captivate the viewer with their drama, visual complexity, and emotional force. His search for artistic subjects that lent themselves well to drama led Jericho to the stables of Versailles, where as a young man he studied the anatomy and the movement of horses there with great interest. That probably lent itself well to the completion of his first major work, The Charging Chaussure, which shows a soldier on horseback. He was able to exhibit that painting at the Paris Salon of 1812. 
From there, Jericho went on to produce a series of small studies of horses and cavalrymen, two favorite subjects of a budding artistic movement with which his name would become synonymous. This was Romanticism. While Romanticism was both an artistic and a literary movement, it was really more of a state of mind than anything, if I'm being honest. It was that state of mind that sent the famed Romantic poet Lord Byron to Greece on a military campaign, bankrolled by himself to support the Greeks' bid for independence from the Ottoman Turks. Now, Lord Byron died of a fever before the fighting even began, but still his intentions were incredibly aligned with the Romantic movement. Romanticism is tricky to define. We're not talking romantic like couples holding hands and reciting sappy love poems to one another at sunset. We're talking capital R Romanticism. The term derives from the late 18th century vogue for the colorful medieval tales of adventure, chivalry, and honor. Think King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table, and the Quest for the Holy Grail. These stories were called romances because they were originally written not in Latin or Greek, like the classical epics, but in the Romance languages, French and Italian being chief among them. The term romantic was used very loosely to conjure up a nostalgic view of the past, and the movement gained added force with the 19th century's revival of Gothic styles in architecture. Romanticism was also almost a direct result of the 18th century's Enlightenment era, when core values of classicism, reason, and order were all in fashion. But the late 1700s were also imbued by a spirit of rebellion, you know, the French Revolution, anyone? Those rebelling against the established social norms of the time would naturally want to, quote, seek release in a craving for emotional experience. The Romantics laid great emphasis on the power of the imagination, the full range of human emotion, and individualism. It's a bit ironic, but both camps, the Enlightenment thinkers and the Romantics, thought that they were championing a return to nature. It's just that one side, the Enlightenment thinkers, thought that that meant advocating for reason. And the other side thought that that meant to reject reason and behave naturally instead by, like, riding the waves of one's emotions to an overindulgent degree. It kind of follows then, with the revolution happening, that this contrast in worldviews became more visible in France than anywhere else. I do not think I can overstate to a modern listener how big of a paradigm shift the French Revolution caused for people. And the politics of the Romantic era followed suit, with the spread of new nationalist movements and popular uprisings dominating the first few decades of the 1800s. In Romantic music, imagination became more important than traditional musical forms, and the compositions of Schubert, Liszt, Chopin, and Brahms emphasized the melodic and the lyrical to communicate the subtlest and most powerful human emotions. Then, in literature, themes of individual heroism, the exotic, and the mysterious all took center stage. The poet William Wordsworth's 1800 second edition of Lyrical Ballads included a now-famous preface in which he described poetry as, quote, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. This was not only the start of, but also essentially the manifesto of the Romantic movement. 
Romantic novels like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein rejected outright a tenacious belief in science and the arrogance of rational enlightenment thinkers. The romantic approach in the visual arts lent itself very well to a broad range of artistic subjects, and this is another reason that it's tough to firmly define it as an art style. Romanticism's anti-rationalist overtones led artists to explore themes that were linked with horror, madness, violence, and the supernatural. There was also a taste for the exotic, as well as visionary mystical ideas. Romantic artists still produced historical or legendary scenes, but they generally set these in the Middle Ages rather than in the ancient times as traditional academic painters might have done. They also developed a distinctive form of landscape painting, think stormy skies and lots of rocky terrain. Many romantic landscape painters also liked to show an individual being dwarfed by the forces of nature. So romantic painters weren't boldly departing from subject matter chosen by other traditional artists, but they would handle that subject matter in an entirely new way. For an example, while academic painters would reshape and retouch nature in order to suit their orderly compositions, the romantics would portray nature as wild and ungovernable. Producing art at the same time that was this contradictory in tone, while remaining focused on the same, you know, areas of subject matter, meant that painters in the two camps, the romantic and the classical, would often go toe-to-toe at exhibitions. And as a result, we can also kind of define them in relation to one another, almost as a dichotomy within the context of early 19th century painting. A lot of times when you read discussions of romantic art, you will see it directly juxtaposed with the more academic painting happening at the time. The contrast, I think, is like necessary to understanding what's going on here. During the 1820s in particular, reviewers of the exhibitions at the Salon placed romantic and classical painters squarely in opposing camps. Romantic painters like Eugène Delacroix were powerful colorists who often produced work that, to their opponents, seemed sketchy and unfinished. They didn't limit themselves to a set of visual rules, though, instead using any artistic methods that allowed them to, quote, cast fleeting emotion into permanent form. Traditionalists also despised the Romantics not only for their style choices, but also for their choice of subjects. They attacked Delacroix's depiction of the nationalist uprising in Greece, for example, by saying it was more suitable for journalists to cover such current battles than painters. Critics were equally appalled by the Romantics' tendency of lingering on the goriest possible details in their pictures. Remember both of those points, as they will come up later in the episode. Artists like classical painter Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, spelled I-N-G-R-E-S, for those of you who don't know the French spelling, uh, were placed in opposition to Delacroix in many reviewers' eyes. These artists regarded sound draftsmanship and a painstakingly detailed enamel-like finish to a painting as the most important aspects that you should be chasing. Now, art history, like regular history, is rarely black and white, and in reality, the boundary between the two styles, romantic and the classical, was rather blurred. Delacroix was a great admirer of tradition, while Ingres chose some themes, most notably his harem paintings, that were decidedly romantic in spirit. 
The Romantic movement was reaching its peak at the same time as the Emperor Napoleon, who reigned from 1804 to 1815, with one brief interruption. With its, quote, glamorous and adventurous conquests in remote parts of the world, the Napoleonic myth gave both the neoclassical painters and the Romantics a lot to work with. He was painted, figuratively speaking, as a man of destiny, who had led his troops into battle in northern Italy at age 27. Napoleon was, for all intents and purposes, a true romantic hero, and artists like Antoine Jean Gross painted him as such because he invited a high use of drama and emotion. This brings us back to Jericho, whose art has come to be emblematic of the spirit of romanticism. Jericho was truly a temperamental individual. In a, quote, fit of disappointment after one of his early paintings didn't receive the acclaim he thought it deserved, he entered the army and served for a time in the garrison of Versailles. He was described as a dandy with a flamboyant and passionate personality. In 1814, Jericho embarked on a stormy love affair with his aunt. Her name was Alexandrine Modeste Carule de Saint-Martin, and she was the wife of his uncle, so his aunt by marriage. I did see a lot of sources just stop at his aunt, which I think makes the love affair sound like a worse offense than it probably was. Alexandrine was 28 years younger than her husband and was eight years older than Jericho. Prompted in part by a desire to distance himself from or heal from this affair, Jericho made a trip to Rome, Florence, and Naples from 1816 to 1817. In Italy, Jericho completed his artistic studies, looking back at artists like Michelangelo and the Baroque masters for inspiration. Nevertheless, he did return from Rome in 1817, presumably resuming the relationship with his aunt, because by the next year, in August 1818, she gave birth to their son. The child was christened Georges Hippolyte, and officially unacknowledged as Jericho's, was given into the care of the family doctor. He then sent the child to Normandy, where he was raised in obscurity. Nothing more is known of the baby Georges or of the relationship between Jericho and his aunt, although we can safely say that their love affair threw his family into turmoil. Okay, I can hear maybe some of you paraphrasing Hamilton saying, can we get back to art history, please? Jericho was drawn to political and historical subjects in his art, not because he believed in any singular cause, but because these subjects allowed him to explore themes of violence, horror, and madness. Quote, all he saw in Napoleon's campaigns was the thrill, irresistible to the romantic, of violent action. He painted wounded soldiers and wild, untamed horses. Even a decidedly traditional subject, a horse race, such as in his 1821 canvas, the Epsom Derby, was set against a very threatening sky. In 1818, Jericho began to work on what would become his masterpiece. This would be The Raft of the Medusa. This monumental painting would cause a sensation at the Salon of 1819. It was certainly Jericho's most ambitious project up till this point, and it has become his most famous one. Moreover, it was the piece that really secured his reputation as a master of the Romantic, as Jericho would die just five short years after its completion. 
At this point, I think it would be useful for you to pull up the Raft of the Medusa, either on Google, uh, Medusa just spelled M-E-D-U-S-A, and Raft, you know, like a little raft that you sail on. Sounds nice, right? Sounds picturesque? Yeah, uh, it's not. And Jericho's name, if you are Googling it, is spelled G-E-R-I-C-A-U-L-T. Of course, I do have this painting up for you on the Instagram. Again, that is Art of History Podcast. Originally titled Send de Naufrage, or Shipwreck Scene, the Raft of the Medusa is over life-size. It is 16 feet tall by 23 and a half feet wide. It depicts a real event, the aftermath of the wreck of a French naval frigate named Meduse. I'm going to call it Medusa, but in French it's Meduse. This ship met with disaster when it ran aground off today's Mauritania on Africa's western coast in the summer of 1816. The Medusa was captained by a man with possibly the Frenchest name I've ever heard, Hugues de Roy de Chaumarey, who was a royalist émigré who had recently returned to France. Despite having barely sailed in the past 20 years, de Chaumarey was appointed captain of the frigate by the Ministry of the Navy purely because of his connections to the newly restored Bourbon government. The Medusa had been commissioned in Nantes back in 1807 and had sailed to Java during the Napoleonic Wars. On this voyage in 1816, it was tasked with accepting the British return of the port of Saint-Louis in the French colony of Senegal, which was being turned over under the terms of France's acceptance of the Peace of Paris. Essentially, Great Britain had captured Senegal during the Napoleonic Wars, and they actually abolished the slave trade there, which uh, objectively is a good thing. But in 1816, they had to return uh, France a lot of territory, and this included Senegal. The Medusa departed Rochefort on June 17, 1816, carrying 400 soldiers and passengers who were meant to be settlers in Senegal. The French-appointed governor of the colony, Colonel Julien Désir Schmaltz, yeah, I, I don't know, and his wife and daughter were also among the passengers. The Medusa was not sailing alone. It also headed a convoy of three other ships, a store ship named Loire, a brig named Argus, or probably Argus in French, and a corvette called Echo. In an effort to make good time on the trip, the Medusa quickly overtook the other ships, with Schmaltz wanting to reach San Louis as fast as possible and by the most direct route. This route, however, would take the fleet of ships dangerously close to the African shore, where there were sandbars and reefs. Experienced crews knew to sail farther away from the coast. The Medusa was the fastest of the convoy, and Captain Chaumarey quickly lost contact with the Loire and the Argus as he was disregarding his orders to remain with the rest of the fleet. The Echo was able to keep pace with the Medusa for a time and attempted to kind of pilot and guide the ship, but this was to no avail. The Echo's crew eventually prudently moved themselves farther out to sea. Not long after this, the Medusa started to drift off course, eventually ending up almost 100 miles off course. Apparently, the captain had decided to involve one of the passengers, a philosopher named Richefort, in the navigation process. Richefort was an esteemed member of the Philanthropic Society of Cape Verde, but this gave him virtually no, like, 
zero qualifications to pilot a ship. So again, a case of prestige helping a man fail upwards into a position that could easily make their situation become life or death. But hey, what do I know? As the Medusa neared the coast of Africa, Richefort apparently mistook a large cloud bank on the horizon for Cape Blanco on the African coast, and so he underestimated how close the ship was to shallow water. Both Captain Chaumarie and Richefort ignored signs of shallow water, such as white breakers and sediment in the water, and a lieutenant named Modet took it upon himself to start taking soundings, depth measurements, off the bow of the ship. When Modet measured a depth of only 18 fathoms, I had to do some googling, a fathom is 6 feet, so this would have been about 108 feet or 33 meters, he chose to warn the captain at this point, who finally realized what danger the Medusa was truly in. The captain ordered the ship be brought up into the wind, but it was too late to truly correct course. Remember, these big ships were difficult to quickly maneuver. On July 2nd, 1816, the Medusa ran aground on a sandbank 31 miles off the West African coast. The captain refused to jettison the 14 three-ton cannons, which may have possibly enabled the crew to successfully free the ship. But with those cannons still aboard, the ship settled into the sand, and it was at that point impossible to free. Initially, a plan was formed to ferry passengers to the shore, which would take, of course, a few trips, because although the Medusa was carrying 400 people, including 160 crew members, there was only space for about 250 people in her boats. The Titanic disaster had not yet happened, and therefore the world had not yet seen firsthand the importance of having enough lifeboats for your entire passenger list. So, the plan initially was to pile as many people as possible in the boats, take one trip the 31 miles to the African coast, turn around, and then come back for the rest of the Medusa's passengers. This plan also involved the construction of a large raft, on which the passengers planned to float the ship's cargo. A raft was constructed, it measured 66 feet long and 23 feet wide, it was made out of wood salvaged from the wreck, and it was nicknamed La Machine by the crew. I will have a diagram of this raft over on the Instagram, the existence of which probably tells you that this raft is about to become a key player in this story. So preparations were underway for the Medusa's crew to enact this plan when on July 5th, a storm hit and the ship showed signs of breaking up completely. With his passengers and crew panicking, Captain Chaumarie decided to evacuate the frigate immediately, leaving no time to enact the original plan of making multiple ferry trips to shore. Instead, it was suggested that the makeshift raft could be used to carry passengers, and the Medusa's longboats could tow that raft to safety. And so that's what they decided to do. The frightened passengers and crew started an attempt to travel the 31 miles to the African coast in the Medusa's six small boats, towing this 66-foot-long raft behind them. It seems that the captain and senior officers got places in those boats, choosing to save themselves over the lower ranks. Seventeen crew members opted to stay aboard the grounded Medusa. The remainder of the passengers, which included some of the ship's crew and, quote, half of a contingent of marine infantrymen intended to garrison Senegal, 
were piled onto the hastily built raft, which again, remember, was constructed out of salvage parts from the ship, including its masts and its beams. Once the raft was loaded, it partially submerged and began taking on water immediately in a sinister sign of things to come. Now, after a few miles of towing the precarious raft, the crews of the boats started to get nervous. They realized that towing the raft for 31 miles was going to be utterly impractical. They began to fear that they would be overwhelmed by the desperate survivors aboard the raft should the raft take on any more water. And so, after traveling only a few miles, it was decided that the ropes connecting the boats to the raft would be cut, leaving its occupants to their fate. The cables were cut, and the raft of the Medusa was turned loose. The lifeboats, which contained, remember, the captain and the future governor of Senegal, sailed away to safety. Some of these boats landed immediately on the coast of Africa, some took a little longer to arrive. Most of the survivors on the boats made their way overland to Senegal, although some apparently died on the way. They left in their wake at least 149 people, 148 men, and one woman, who I haven't really seen any research on. At the Louvre, DM me with more info, please. These 149 people were set adrift on the makeshift raft, completely forsaken and entirely at the mercy of the seas, currents, and storms. They had no means of navigation and were so crowded on the vessel that movement was virtually impossible. It is the understatement of the century to say that the situation deteriorated rapidly. Before we get into the high drama that is about to unfold on the raft of the Medusa, I'm going to take a little break, and when I come back, we will pick right back up. These, these 149 people are not going anywhere. They're stuck on this raft. And we will see what made this story so compelling for a romantic master like Theodore Jericho. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And we are back. Uh, you might wish in a few minutes that we weren't, because it is about to get quite dark for the survivors of the wreckage of the Medusa who are currently adrift in the Atlantic Ocean on their raft. For sustenance, the crew on this raft had only a bag of ship's biscuit, which was consumed entirely on the first day. They also had two casks of water and six casks of wine. Don't see a problem there at all. Almost immediately, fights broke out between the officers and passengers on the raft and the sailors and soldiers. On the first night adrift, 20 men were either killed or committed suicide. 
Stormy weather was threatening overhead, and only the center area of the raft was truly secure. Dozens of people died either fighting to get to the middle of the raft or by being washed overboard by the waves. At some point, the casks of fresh water were lost over the side of the raft during a fight, leaving only wine for the remaining survivors to drink. And I'm sure, again, that didn't cause or exacerbate any problems at all. Critic Jonathan Miles wrote that the raft carried the castaways, quote, to the frontiers of human experience. Crazed, parched, and starved, they slaughtered mutineers, ate their dead companions, and killed the weakest. On day four, only 67 people out of the original 149 remained. And then the cannibalism began. There are actually traditional rules that governed how cannibalism would take place amidst survivors of a shipwreck. This is part of what's called the custom of the sea. The cannibalism custom, also called the delicate question, specified that in the case of a maritime disaster, when there was not enough food for survivors, corpses could be eaten. If there were no dead bodies readily available for consumption, lots would be drawn to determine who was going to be sacrificed for the greater good, to provide food for the good of the group. As long as the lottery was fair and gave everyone an equal risk of being the person who was meant to die to become food for the others, this was considered completely fair play, justified by the extreme circumstances. Historian A.W. Brian Simpson writes that, quote, there was general understanding of what had to be done on these occasions and that survivors who had followed the custom could have a certain professional pride in a job well done. There was nothing to hide if, preceded by the drawing of lots and killing, it was a socially accepted practice among seamen until the end of the days of sale. The only cases where cannibalism in maritime disasters sometimes led to legal prosecution once back on shore was, quote, when the lotteries were fixed or absent altogether, such as when captains or officers, unwilling to put their own lives at risk, instead chose who to sacrifice. This was normally people that they considered, quote, more expendable, such as slaves, young boys, or passengers. On day eight on the raft of the Medusa, the sick and mortally wounded were cast into the sea by the able-bodied in order to conserve dwindling space and supplies. By the time that help would arrive on July 17th, day 13 since the raft had been sent adrift, all but 15 of the Medusa's survivors were dead. Rescue came when the brig Argus caught sight of the raft and its emaciated passengers by complete chance, as, quote, no particular search effort was made by the French for the raft. Captain Chaumarie did send salvage ships back to the Medusa itself in order to retrieve the gold that had been aboard. This salvage party reached the wreckage 54 days after it had been abandoned, at which point it was revealed that only three of the 17 men who had stayed aboard the wreckage of the Medusa had survived. As for the survivors of the raft, the Argus took them to Saint Louis to recover. Five of them died within days. Those who survived had endured horrific conditions, starvation, dehydration, and some had resorted to cannibalism and also had avoided being cannibalized themselves. 
The dead and missing of the crew of the raft had either been killed in fights, had fallen overboard in storms, been thrown overboard by their comrades, had died of starvation or thirst, or had hurled themselves into the sea out of sheer despair. Jericho in The Raft of the Medusa has depicted the few remaining passengers of the vessel, quote, summoning what little strength they have to flag down the passing ship far on the horizon. Initially, however, the artist could not decide which aspect of the raft saga to paint, and he toyed with the idea of completing five scenes. The conflict, the mutiny, the infighting, the cannibalism, the sighting of the Argus, the hailing of the rescue ship, or the rescue itself. He finally settled on the moment that the rescue ship was sighted as his setting. That's not the only theme at play here, however, as Jericho has worked some of the aftermath of the horrific ordeals that the castaways faced into the composition. He uses the toll that the 13 days at sea took on them to literally build up the central part of the scene, because the floor of the raft is just littered with dead bodies and despairing crew members. These living bodies look just tortured over the state that they have found themselves in. How do we and Jericho know about this episode? Well, the surgeon of the Medusa, Henri Savigny, and the governor of Senegal's secretary submitted accounts of the shipwreck and the ensuing tragedy to the French authorities almost immediately. Savigny and another survivor of the ordeal would later write books as well. The initial report, though, was quickly leaked to an anti-monarchist newspaper, the Journal des Débats, and was published on September 13, 1816. The event became an international political scandal and was used as an excuse to criticize the newly restored Bourbon king, Louis XVIII. The monarchy had only recently been restored to power after Napoleon's defeat in 1815, and the 1816 incident of the Medusa became a huge public embarrassment for them, due in part because its cause was widely attributed to the incompetence of the French captain, who, remember, was appointed not for his skill, but for political reasons. At his court-martial, spoiler alert, in 1817, Captain Chaumery was tried on five counts. He was acquitted of abandoning his squadron, of failing to refloat his ship, and of abandoning the raft, but he was found guilty of incompetent and complacent navigation, and of abandoning the ship, the Medusa, before all of her passengers had been taken off. He was sentenced to just three years in jail, even though those crimes could have carried the death penalty. In 1818, Senegal's governor Schmaltz was forced to resign in the wake of this scandal. The incident also contributed to reforms in French law that ensured that promotions in the military would be based on merit. I do think it's worth noting, particularly given the fact that Jericho was a Republican, that he honed in on the human toll of this disaster, and he did not choose to show the ineptitude of the Medusa's captain or any of the conflict that caused the raft to end up in such dire straits. The choice to show the survivors at the moment that they catch sight of a possible rescue, which is still very much not guaranteed in this moment, and we'll get to that, um, but look how tiny that frigate on the horizon actually is. 
that choice places the emotional stakes as high as they could possibly go. Like, this moment that he is depicting on this canvas, this was it. If the raft failed to capture the ship's attention in this moment, it was all over for those 15 men who were left alive. The painting also emphasizes, above all else, the individual suffering that took place during the 13 days that the raft was at sea, more so than it highlights any of the political posturing that initiated or followed the disaster. And that's a true romantic, capital R, at work. Picking the moment that they can most thoroughly get swept up in, in a deep, profound range of human emotion. As grouping as the account of the Medusa's shipwreck and the raft was, many critics believed that the subject matter, which was a very current event by the time that Jericho was painting it in 1818-1819, many critics believed that that subject matter was better suited to investigative journalism than to high academic art. Nevertheless, Jericho did take over eight months to, quote, capture the horror, chaos, and emotion of the tragedy, yet invoke the grandeur and impact of large-scale history painting. The Raft of the Medusa captures the moment when, on the 13th day being adrift, the remaining 15 survivors viewed a ship approaching from a distance. In reality, they spent half an hour trying to attract its attention, but the ship soon disappeared, and they were cut down from, quote, the delirium of joy into profound despondency. While the Argus, the ship, did reappear two hours later and then rescued those who remained, contemporary viewers of Jericho's painting would have felt free to bask in the earlier moment when all hope seemed lost and rescue was very much not assured because they were so well-versed in the course of events that marked the story of the Medusa. Jericho's figures in the painting respond to the sighting of the distant ship in various ways. Some in the foreground are so far past the point of hope for rescue that they have literally turned their backs on it. They sit facing the viewer rather than the horizon where the ship has appeared. But others have risen to the challenge of trying to summon help, literally as a makeshift pyramid on the right half of the canvas, comprised almost entirely of human bodies, is topped by a single figure, a black man. He has been hoisted onto the shoulders of his comrades so that he can wave a piece of cloth towards the ship. For his composition, Jericho abandoned the, quote, straightforward organization of neoclassical compositions and instead presented a jumble of writhing bodies, which were piled one atop another in every attitude of suffering, despair, and death imaginable. He's done this by using a few compositional tricks of the trade, so to speak. First, the human figures, both alive and dead, are arranged in a powerful X-shaped composition, with one, quote, light-filled diagonal axis stretching from the sprawled course at the lower left all the way up to the most hopeful figure of all in the upper right. If you have your eye follow this diagonal line from lower left to upper right, you'll travel across the full range of human emotion, from defeat to tentative expectancy in the middle to hope and elation. The other axis, quote, descends from the storm clouds and the dark billowing sail at the upper left to the shadowed upper torso of the body trailing in the open sea. You can also look at this painting in another way by looking at the two large triangular shapes created by the raft's mast at the left and the pyramid of bodies at the right. 
The triangle is the strongest shape, and it always produces a striking visual effect where it is employed. It's being used in the Raft of the Medusa to create a contrast between the defeated castaways seated on the deck and the team of sailors still holding on to hope at the other end of the raft. The horizontal grouping of dead and dying figures in the foreground forms the base of both of these triangles, but the eye is drawn away from the shadowy recesses of the mast and sail, and travels instead along the highlighted figure who is reaching upwards and is drawn into the right-hand triangle from which the survivors emerge, before finally surging upwards towards the, quote, emotional peak of the scene. Finally, Jericho made the decision to place the raft at a diagonal so that a corner is facing the viewer, which adds to the dynamic nature of the scene. In art history, straight lines and right angles are solid and suggest an unshakable surface. Diagonals are nearly almost there to shake things up and perhaps make you feel a bit uneasy. All of this was carefully rendered by Jericho in order to tug on his audience's heartstrings and get the maximum emotional payoff possible. Most of the figures, due to the large scale of the painting, are about life-size, and those in the immediate foreground closest to the viewer are even larger. They are, in the words of Joanna Bonham, quote, pushed close to the picture plane and crowding onto the viewer, who is drawn into the physical action as a participant. It compels you to get a bit more invested in the scene. Jericho also went to great lengths to accurately depict the conditions of the horrific situation on the raft. The event itself, which had been widely discussed in the wake of the tragedy, clearly fascinated him on a personal level as well as for its potential as the subject of a painting. Jericho saw this as his chance to produce a career-making work of art, and so he took the composition incredibly seriously. Art historian Georges-Antoine Bourriat wrote, quote, Jericho established his studio across from Beaujean Hospital, and here he began a mournful descent. Behind locked doors, he threw himself into his work. Nothing repulsed him. He was dreaded and avoided. He observed dead and dying patients at that local hospital, made studies in its dissecting room, and even sketched the remains of guillotined criminals. He became obsessed with rigor mortis and wanted more than anything to be able to accurately depict bodies in various stages of death and decay. He brought severed limbs back to his studio to study the process of decay and even borrowed a severed head from an asylum, stored it on his studio roof, and drew it over the course of two weeks. Some critics, again, felt that he had gone too far by wallowing in morbid details like this. And, I mean, I have to admit, I think they might have a point. But Jericho was determined to get the color, movement, and texture of the whole scene correct, particularly where it was within dead human flesh. The reasoning here, I'm sure, was to stir up a violent reaction in the viewer. Jericho was also able to interview two survivors of the disaster, Henri Savigny, the surgeon, and Alexandre Corriard, an engineer. He traveled to La Havre and crossed the English Channel to study the sea and sky. He even traveled to the French coast several times, even while sick with a fever, to view storms breaking on the shore. 
What's more, he had a scale model of the raft constructed inside his studio with the aid of some of the survivors' accounts. It features in several studies that Jericho completed in preparation for the final composition, including one that depicts the act of cannibalism taking place, and I will post that on the Instagram. He has also taken some artistic liberties, mainly in choices that heighten the drama of the situation on the raft, as if, you know, it needed any help from Jericho. For example, there are almost definitely more bodies on the raft than there would have been in reality by the time that rescue finally arrived. Remember, the survivors were throwing the dead and dying overboard in order to conserve space. And the day on which the survivors were saved was recorded as being clear and calm, not marked by the mercurial weather conditions that serve to intensify the painted scene. And although the survivors being depicted here had, in reality by this point, spent 13 days suffering starvation, withstanding disease, and avoiding being cannibalized, they would have they would have been emaciated, right? They would have had matted hair and beards, they would have been sunburnt with sores on their body. But Jericho has instead presented them as athletic and healthy, paying tribute to their roles as the heroes of the painting. For his color palette, he stuck primarily to dark, muted hues, composed of mainly brown pigments. From the pallid flesh tones of the bodies, to the muddy tones of the survivors' clothes, even the murky sea and the clouds are muted, made up of green and gray rather than blue or white. Jericho believed that this color palette would be the most effective in suggesting tragedy and pain. A bright blue sky, white crests of the waves, they might have been incongruous with the tragic scene that he was trying to get us to buy into. The lighting of the piece has been described as theatrical and Caravaggesque after the Italian artist Caravaggio, who pioneered the technique of tenebrism. We've mentioned that term a couple times on the podcast. That is the heavy contrast between the stark light areas of the painting and the deep dark ones. I think it's no coincidence, too, that the warmest and brightest point in the entire painting emanates from the sky behind the distant rescue ship. Jericho may have also worked some of his own social ideals into the painting, namely in his choice to make the survivor at the peak of the pyramid, waving that piece of cloth to attract attention, a black man. We actually know the name of the man that Jericho placed atop the pyramid. There were several black soldiers aboard the Medusa, and this one was known as Jean Charles. He was one of the men who did make it off the raft, and he was the last surviving African soldier of the wreck. But Jean Charles died while convalescing at San Louis. Jericho was a member of an abolitionist group that sought ways to end slavery in France's colonies. Given his, quote, antipathy to the institution of slavery, it is fitting and poignant that he has placed Jean Charles at the top of the pyramidal composition. He hired a Haitian model named Joseph to model for at least two of the figures on the raft, including the face of a figure positioned between the mast and the supporting rope on its right-hand side. Jericho also produced a beautiful portrait uh, study of Joseph during the course of his work on the Raft of the Medusa, which I will also put on the Instagram. 
But most notably, Joseph stood in for the representation of Jean-Charles, waving his dark red piece of cloth for all he's worth. Jericho also used a famous ancient Greek sculpture known as the Belvedere Torso as a reference for the figure of Jean-Charles back. This fragment of classical sculpture, with its contorted posed and bulging muscles, was a source of inspiration for the likes of Michelangelo, and was famous for being one of the only pieces of Greek statuary to go unrestored after its rediscovery. So this is another area where the Romantic painters and the academic traditional painters overlapped. They were both looking to classical art for figural uh, inspiration. Some of the other figures on the raft were rendered from living models as well, including Jericho's 18-year-old assistant, Louis-Alexis Jamar, who posed for three figures, including the dead body about to slip into the sea at the lower right-hand side of the painting. Jericho also had three of the survivors of the raft pose for him. Two of them can be seen uh, playing the role of themselves at the base of the mast. They are almost entirely obscured in the shadows. And it didn't stop there. Another leading artist of the French Romantic movement, Eugène Delacroix, also posed for one of the figures in the raft. This was the man in the foreground with his face turned down and his arm outstretched. Delacroix was, quote, astounded by the passion and energy of the finished work, and its impact can definitely be seen in his own work during the 1820s. He wrote of Jericho after his death, quote, I have seen the death mask of Jericho and his sublime raft. What hands and heads! I cannot express the admiration it inspires. I feel a longing to make a sketch of it. What a precious reminder of this extraordinary man. In his depiction of the Medusa disaster, Jericho had decidedly, quote, abandoned the idealism of neoclassicism and instead invoked the theatricality of romanticism. The composition was meant to represent every type of emotion that humans can have in a given situation. But perhaps the thing I love most about this painting is that you can, in good faith, say that it depicts a romantic getaway. The Raft of the Medusa was presented at the Salon of 1819, that state-sponsored art exhibition that represented a who's who of the French art scene. It was originally titled The Unassuming Shipwreck Scene, but it was well known to be depicting the specific event of the Medusa's raft. King Louis XVIII, who sponsored the Salon, was reported as saying, Monsieur Jericho, your shipwreck is certainly no disaster, when he previewed the exhibition. I don't know, that might be apocryphal, especially because of the embarrassment that the Medusa disaster caused for Louis XVIII, um, but it would be cool if he, if he did say that. Le Journal de Paris wrote of the painting, it strikes and attracts all eyes. And this is exactly what I think I would diplomatically write about a larger-than-life painting that was completely dividing audience. It's, it's certainly striking. One of Jericho's fellow painters, Marie-Philippe Coupin de la Couperie, summed up some of the gripes about the piece, which were that it was contrary to the belief that painting was meant to depict nothing but ideal beauty. Coupin wrote, Monsieur Jericho seems mistaken. The goal of the painting is to speak to the soul and the eyes, not to repel. 
How could he expect this pile of corpses to stand the test of time as anything more than a novelty or an object of gross fascination? But the painting also had its fans, including writer Auguste Jal, who praised its implied political or maybe anti-political theme, its liberal position, and its modernity. The historian Jules Michelet also approved, writing, quote, our whole society is aboard the raft of the Medusa. This division of responses was almost certainly expected by Jericho, who as a romantic would have been aware that his emotion-driven worldview was not the norm and that it was going to ruffle some feathers. Part of the reason that the painting maybe had so many critics may have been its physical position in the Salon exhibition. The 16 foot by 23 foot painting had been hung up high in the Salon Carré, which was a mistake that Jericho recognized immediately when he saw how it had been installed. He had intended for the viewer to confront the piece at eye level and to be swept up in the emotions at play. This was made considerably more difficult if the audience was craning their necks to look up to take the scene in. Nevertheless, the painting won a gold medal at the Salon of 1819, but it was not selected for purchase into the Louvre's national collection, which was something that happened after the end of each Salon. Instead, Jericho rolled it up, stored it at a friend's house, and went home to collapse from exhaustion. Very relatable. The following year, in 1820, he arranged for the painting to be exhibited in London at Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly. There, it was viewed by about 40,000 visitors, who gave it a much warmer reception than the piece had received in Paris. This could have had something to do with the fact that Jericho ensured that the painting would be displayed closer to the ground in London, emphasizing its monumental impact for viewers who were now faced with the dynamic composition head-on. The Raft of the Medusa was hailed in London as, quote, representative of a new direction in French art, and its popularity was certainly helped by the fact that there were two dramatic stage adaptations of the Medusa disaster being shown in London at the same time. During the course of the London exhibition, Jericho raked in about 20,000 francs in royalties and his share of the ticket sales. This was much more than he would have made had the French government decided to purchase the Raft of the Medusa after the 1819 Salon. In 1822, he began what was probably his next best-known body of work, a series of portraits of mental patients. Each one, quote, highlighted a specific medical condition with clinical accuracy. These consisted of ten portraits of the patients of a friend, Dr. Etienne-Jean Georget, who was a pioneer in psychiatric medicine. Like many of his contemporaries, Jericho was fascinated by physiognomy, the idea that a person's facial features could reveal something about their character or their mental state. Having spent almost a year exploring the, quote, extremes of the human condition while preparing the Raft of the Medusa, he came to particularly believe that a person's face revealed its secrets at the moment of death. He kept up his studies of the heads of guillotine victims as a result. 
one of the five surviving works from this later series, which I have seen called both Insane Woman and The Mad Woman Afflicted by Envy, depicts an older woman with eyes which are rimmed red and a mouth that is drawn just really tight from implied suffering. Jericho displayed a sympathetic ability to see victims of mental disease as, quote, fellow human beings, not as accused or bewitched outcasts, in what one textbook calls, quote, one of the noblest fruits of the Romantic movement. The painting of the, quote, insane woman is often presented alongside the Raft of the Medusa in art history texts. And that's probably because this series, while definitely compelling, was also one of the last things that Jericho completed. He had great plans and even completed studies for ambitious and epic compositions that may have rivaled the 1819 masterpiece, The Raft of the Medusa. But these would go unrealized, as Jericho would die in 1824 at age 32, from complications of both horseback riding accidents and a persistent infection that sounds suspiciously like tuberculosis. His grave at the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris features a tomb topped by a reclining bronze portrait statue, paintbrush in hand, situated above a carved panel depicting a small-scale version of the Raft of the Medusa. It wouldn't be until after Jericho's death that his masterpiece would return to France. The Comte de Forbin, the curator of the Louvre, purchased the work for the museum from Jericho's heirs after his death. He had been trying to purchase it during Jericho's lifetime, but had been thwarted each attempt. So I guess after his death, Jericho's family said, yeah, you know what, take it. The Raft of the Medusa has been in the Louvre's collection ever since. Physically, though, it did have one major interruption to its tenancy in the Louvre's galleries. In the middle of the night on September 3rd, 1939, the Raft of the Medusa was removed and transported on a scenery truck from the Comédie Française in anticipation of war. It was housed temporarily at Versailles and was later moved to the Château de Chambord, where it remained until after France's liberation. Today, its label at the Louvre Museum remarks that, quote, the only hero in this poignant story is humanity itself. Now, we're going to get into the spoiler alert that I mentioned at the top of the episode, namely the reason that I decided to cover the Raft of the Medusa at this point. Today, the painting is displayed in the Louvre's Red Rooms, which takes their name from the color of their walls. These galleries are home to some of the largest paintings in the Louvre's collection. It is in one of the Red Rooms that the Raft of the Medusa was when it was prominently featured in the recent film John Wick Chapter 4. This is your last chance to turn off this episode before I spoil pretty much the entire John Wick franchise for you, so I don't want to see any complaints in my inbox. The character Winston, one of the good guys, pauses in front of the Raft of the Medusa as he begins to leave the Louvre, near the end of a tense conversation he is having with a character called the Marquis. This is the big baddie of John Wick Chapter 4. I was immediately transfixed by the choice of paintings for this scene, as alongside the Raft of the Medusa, also prominently featured, is the famous Liberty Leading the People. It appears behind the Marquis, who is played by Bill Skarsgård. 
I think that there are obvious themes associated with that piece, which you can pick up on in real time if you're watching John Wick Chapter 4. Namely, I think it suggests the freedom and liberation that John Wick and Winston are seeking from the Marquis and the High Table, which is a big uh, crime organization worldwide, international, has everyone under their thumb, which they're trying to get out from under. But the prominent presence of the Raft of the Medusa was not as easy for me to fully conceptualize until the very end of the movie. At its first appearance, I felt that it represented the desperation felt by John Wick and by Winston as they had resolved to free themselves from their oppression by the high table. This is your absolute final spoiler warning. Okay. By the end of the film, though, I thought it completely possible that the painting was also kind of a literal foreshadowing of not only the high body count of the fight scene that was going to ensue, which defined John Wick's final battle with the high table, but also symbolic of the culmination of his struggle at the end of the film. This happens through him winning a duel against the Marquis and also meeting, finally, after four movies, his own death viewers are left feeling a full range of emotions as John Wick meets his end. Relief that he had found freedom and closure, even happiness that he was finally at peace, but also grief that it came at such a high cost. I mean, really, if we want to go this far, John Wick, a true romantic hero. (laughs) Okay, back to the art to wrap up. The National Gallery of Art in London, where Jericho achieved some of his warmest praise, has commissioned two biographies of the artist, and they say this of him on their website. Quote, Jericho is consistently called a genius who died on the brink of full creative flower. His surviving works in every medium have always eluded categorization. Independent and undogmatic, he acted with both impetuous engagement and rigorous discipline, moved easily from classical to modern subjects, and integrated scrupulous scrupulous preliminary studies with inspired invention, no matter the subject. Art historians, I swear to God, all have synonym, like thesaurus engines installed in their browsers because there's no other way. There's no other way. (laughs) All right, continuing on. He evolved a powerful coalition of solid draftsmanly structure, a light-catching palpable three-dimensionality, and a painterly touch and palette. Jericho became one of the following generation's most haunting artistic paradigms, the ill-fated, engaged genius. For many, his work signaled a brilliant path for the art of the future to negotiate between tradition and innovation. What I find so fascinating about Theodore Jericho was that his artistic temperament and lifestyle were equally typical of the Romantic movement as his paintings. I mean, he conducted a doomed love affair with his aunt. That alone should qualify him as a true member of the Romantic movement. He also had a brief but no less hazardous military career and was a reckless rider, loving nothing more than a battle of wills with a lively horse. It was those riding accidents that helped to accelerate his early death, which only added for contemporary audiences to the romantic aura surrounding his name. He's also one of the giants of art history, despite his short life and career. He achieved an artistic style that was, quote, both realistic and in the highest degree expressive. 
1980, more than 150 years after the shipwreck of the Medusa, a French marine archaeological expedition was launched in an attempt to locate the wreckage off of the coast of Mauritania. Led by Jean-Yves Blot, or Blow, I don't know, the expedition used accounts of survivors and the records of an 1817 French coastal mapping expedition that had found the vessel's remains still projecting among the waves. Those accounts proved so useful that although Blot and his team had 25 square kilometers to search, they located the Medusa on the first day. They recovered enough artifacts, about 100, to positively identify the wreck, and then those were given to the Mauritanian Institute of Scientific Research, and then were used to mount an exhibit in the Marine Museum in Paris. Those artifacts serve as a fateful reminder of the extreme consequences that come when those in power lose sight of their very humanity, something that romantics like Jericho would be thrilled to know that we've successfully eradicated from society today. I mean, come on. If it were not for Jericho cementing the raft of the Medusa in our collective image of history, that wreckage may never have been found. And it was his choice to fuse together the grisly realities of a tragic situation with the high drama of romantic art that makes that image stick so poignantly in our minds. That is going to be all from me today. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really does help me get Art of History in front of new listeners, and that only means I have more time and energy to create these episodes for you. If you are interested in supporting the show further, I am on Patreon at patreon.com slash fact. That's M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Don't forget to follow the Instagram at Art of History Podcast. And I do continue to make my own royal history videos on TikTok at Mata of Fact. Uh, there's a coronation coming up. I don't know if you've heard about it, um, but that's going to be my focus for the next two weeks. Uh, and then we'll be back at the end of May with another episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments about this episode or what you would like to hear next on the show, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the Instagram, shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com, or I don't know, send me a carrier pigeon, something like that. I'll get it eventually. Thank you ever so much for listening. It truly does mean the world to me. Until the next one. Thank you.